podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. Neil Atkinson, Ian Salmon and James Sutton with you for the opening of the show. And we're going to come on to discuss why. But listen, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not much news escaping from Liverpool's camp. It's a strange Friday to try to do this show on for your Liverpool this week. A little bit tricky, a little bit different. There's lads cycling around Marbella, like it's a massive centre park. And that's about the beginning, middle and end of the matter from a Liverpool point of view. Yes, Emre Chan may or may not make the squad. Trent Alexander-Arnold, everyone's made up. He's, he's, he's been selected for the World Cup squad and all the best to him for that. That. But we decided to take the opportunity this week to have a little bit of a breather. So coming up, we've got Samantha Johnson talking about her experience as being a black woman in the media uh, as a follow-on from a conversation we had with Melissa Reddy on International Women's Day. We've got Grant Wall talking about his new book, that's after seven o'clock, and Michael Lambert asking for help for oral histories he's writing about uh, the NHS and uh, PSS across Liverpool at the minute. That's all to come. We're going to start off though with a mad collaboration. Ian Salmon and James Sutton find themselves... Well, Ian's written the play, James is starring in it. Ian, firstly, what's the play called? And secondly, how's this all come about? Well, the play's called Venus Rising, and it came about directly because of the Anfield Rap. Is this true? I didn't yeah. know. Oh, good directly Lord, I because of the Anfield Rap and City Talk. Um, we did a show together about two years ago, possibly a bit longer. Um, me, James, you and Gibbo. And you introduced the service in the City Talk Tower and said, Ian, this is James. James, this is Ian. Never met didn't know, didn't know who either was. Obviously, he's somewhat more notable than I am, and I didn't know who he was. Um, so we did the show. You and Gibbo were recording something. Charmer, else isn't he, James? I am. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about sweet seduction. Says all the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough at the top. And <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tougher where I am. Um, and so you two were recording something afterwards, and we walked down. We we're both basically going back to the same car park. So we walked down from the tower. Walked up towards Lime Street, took a right onto, well, the end of Lime Street. And we were talking as we went through. And then this lad stops James and goes, can I get me photo with you, mate, for me bed? I'm standing there going, I have no idea what's happening. And James standing there going, I'm not anybody, you know. I got, yeah, you, you got, you're mistaken me. He's going, yeah, they all say that, don't they? Johnny Depp says that. He's like, no, no. So he has his photo taken, uh, puts his arm around the lad's, lad's dad's photo taken, going, oh, great, you'll love that, thanks, mate. And I thought... I'm going to be the rudest I've ever been now. I'm like, look, I'm really sorry. Should I know who you are? He said, oh, I'm nobody. I said, well, you clearly aren't nobody. You're clearly somebody. But he said, oh, I'm an actor. I went, oh, it sounds, well, I'm a writer. And I'm thinking, I've got an actor here that might be useful for one of my players at some point. Have you been anything that now? Well, I'm on Hollyoaks at the moment. And I, was just, I, I was on Emmerdale for two years, and I was on Hollyoaks before. And I thought, oh, God, I'm out of my depth here, aren't I? Um, and that was how we, met, how we met, and I'd not seen Hollyoaks. I'd, I'd, I'd seen I'd seen James in Emmerdale, but didn't realise I'd seen him in Emmerdale um, because I was like, "Well, who did you play in Emmerdale?" So I was in the garage in the garage with Kane for two years. Went home, told my wife, and she said, "Oh, I, yeah, I remember him," um, in a very very favourable manner. Oh, I, yeah, I remember him. As as um, every woman I've spoken to about James said, "Oh, yeah, I remember him." Um, and we basically kept in touch on Twitter, just occasional conversation on Twitter. And then somebody tweeted about a show that we'd done, which I thought was a really good show, and said, can you take Ian R. Salmon off the good shows because his voice makes my ears bleed? I was like, thanks, mate, much love. And James and James tweeted back saying, um, you know, I, I've been told I'm the worst actor on television, but my mum still loves me, don't worry about it. So we had a little conversation privately about that, which became... I'm, I'm looking at making a short film. I'm looking at, well, do you fancy doing a birthday? Is it? it became a conversation. It became going on for a couple of cups of coffee together. And 
this was gave you a few pieces to read, and this was the one you liked, wasn't it? Yeah, this is the one you liked. Uh, James, what's it about? Uh, it is a. Uh, I, I don't want to say it's a one man show because that's that's not fair. We have a, a wonderful supporting cast, but I am on stage for an hour and a quarter, hour and twenty minutes talking. I play a uh, writer. Uh, I, I mean, I think I think it's loosely based on. So there's there's a lot of Ian Salmon in there. Um, Tons of it. <laughs> I, I play a writer who writes uh, mucky books for women, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey type books, and hates his life. He is an alcoholic. He is a narcissist. Uh, just he's at his absolute wit's end with the way his chips have fallen and the way his life has worked out, um, and is trying to pick the pieces of his life up and see if he can get a happy ending. So you're on stage for an hour and a quarter. I'm an on stage. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is this is this is quite the ask. It's a huge. I'm, it's it's a test of stamina, a test of will. <laughs> it's it's equal parts exciting and terrifying because there's nowhere to hide. There's no you know there's no changes. Once I'm on, that's it. I'm there's on. no there's no breather. There's no no no. I'm there, and the audience will be right in front of me. It's going to be fabulous. I mean, it's one of those things. You know, you've got to you 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 know, you, it's sink or swim. You've got to do it. If for you as an actor, the the, the shift. I was that was when I was uh, when I was shooting the film. One of the things I was. Oh, around shooting the film one of, one of the things I was, was give piece of advices that were given to me on doing a low budget film was always seriously consider uh, soap actors mm-hmm. and the reason why I seriously consider soap actors is two reasons uh, one there's an astonishing work ethic and mm-hmm. I think it's something that's not talked about enough there's an astonishing work Absolutely. ethic but also two there's an acceptance of turnaround time that one of the reasons why there's an exceptional work ethic is that you have to work well because you have to work quickly because there's all this to do and when you're doing a low budget film that's a thing yeah. it's surely the same for a play like this in terms of the fact that you've not got endless amounts of time to work on it you've got to prep it you're on stage for an hour and a quarter and the work ethic's important you've got to be able to graft if you're it, going to be able to do this it comes down to professionalism and it's not you know it's not me blowing my own trumpet it is it is a soap actor thing soap actors are incredibly professional people we took we have like you say we have no time scale we turn up on time we know our lines we do our job and we're called upon to play all a whole you know a huge range of emotions in such a small space of time that requires dedication that requires focus and that requires professionalism and doing a play like this where there's nowhere to hide it is a huge it's a huge thing for me to undertake it's you know it's a 48 page monologue essentially but it's it it, it shows my commitment to to you know to being a stage actor as well as being a tv actor it's going with james in this sort of scenario and and going with a the idea of the pressure that you put on a stage actor here. I mean, you know, it is, that's relentless 48 pages, an hour and a quarter on one actor on stage, that that, that duration. James is now pulling a face at Ian. Yeah. No interval. Uh, this, is, uh, this is, this is, this is, this is a relentless ask. It's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive ask. And the thing with it is, um, this is basically the first full length play I wrote. Um, so I'm, I'm for, this is my, this is a repeat of my first produced play um, on a bigger scale. I've produced four uh, so far. I'm writing my ninth of the moments before produced. Um, so this is something I wanted to revisit for a couple of years. Um, I wanted to revisit with the right people. And it was basically, I joined a writer's group. I didn't know I was going to be a playwright at the time. I just joined a writer's group. And they had a play competition. And I thought, well, I can't write a play. I don't know how to write a play. And they said, well, we'll take monologues. I thought... I can write 45 pages of um, stream of consciousness. And I went for it. As Josh I, knows. I, yeah, and then, and then thought... <laughs> Loves the sound of his own pen, this one. <laughs> oh, completely. As much as I clearly love the sound of my own voice. Um, and it's, it's one of those where you don't think, as, as a neophyte writer, you don't think, someone's got to remember this. And that's, that's the first thing. The first thing is remembering 48 pages of dialogue in order that is going to make sense. I've seen people do five pages and get the flow wrong. So to do 48 pages and to get the flow right and to get the story right and to get the 
the drama and the emotions, right? It's it's a massive ask, but it, it is, as James was saying, it's it's very much not only do soap actors have the work ethic and the dedication and the understanding of the turnaround on very little time and being able to apply themselves that way. They've got so much more talent than people ever appreciate. These, you know, the majority of soap actors are very, very good actors. They're very highly trained. They, you know, everyone's done the same training. And, and this is part of, obviously, James has done his time on soap and wants to do interesting theatre now. So this is why we want to do this. And it's also the venue we're doing it in, the other people we're using. Where is the venue? It's the Hope Street Theatre. It's the new Hope Street Theatre. It's the old Masonic Halls opposite the Everyman, yep. which is a lovely, lovely venue. And there's a lad called Sam Donovan running there. And what he wants to Upstairs do... Upstairs or downstairs in there? It's down... Well, it's on the ground floor. So okay. there's a new bar opens. It's behind the bar. It's the, the old, old Masonic, Grand Hall, isn't it? It's the old Grand Hall. It's, it's still got, obviously, the um, the compasses and the yep. everything up on the walls. The decorations, fantastic. Oh, <laughs> great space. And it's a flexible space that you can basically make into anything you want. It's an exciting space yes yeah that definitely was, that was for me that was one of the things that one of the things that made me want to do this play was not just the material was also the the venue that it's in you know this city is is has always been steeped in in art and culture um and this theater is going to be doing interesting exciting modern work that challenges people and there's not many venues around the northwest that do that not in liverpool i mean you know every every theater in liverpool has an incredible responsibility and they all do it really really well you've got the royal court that does fabulous comedy and things like that you've got your big theater you've got the everyman that has a wonderful rep company now producing you know really great work with a big cast the unity the playhouse they've all got the role they've all got their role this this is somewhere that we can put on just bonkers things, really, you know, things that you won't get anywhere else. And that's that's a huge thing for me to be part of. It's also the fact that what Sam wants to build there is he wants to build a community and he wants to give chances to people um, coming up who aren't getting their plays anywhere else. You know, I'd, I've been lucky enough to have my plays on a couple of places and had four nights of the unity. So I've, I've had that. And obviously James has had 10 years of television. So um, it's kind of, this isn't necessarily... Blowing my own trumpets anyway, but we're we're kind of a big opening for the theatre, aren't we? So we're opening in Fringe Week as well. Yeah. So Fringe is going on, and we're kind of a big opening to show what the theatre is capable of. But it's a it's a theatre that's going to build people's careers and build talents within Liverpool, and we're very very much about that. So the cast that we've got, we've got um, people who've done a few plays that I've seen. Um, we've got uh, a lad who's the supporting James' best mate in the play who helps run Liverpool Arts Society. So we've got a director who has been um, assistant director on Romeo and Juliet at the um, the Everyman and has done a lot of work up in Edinburgh. And she is now taking the step up and doing something within Liverpool. So it's a chance to do interesting work within Liverpool and put something interesting on. You know, it's Laura Connolly, who's playing James's wife. Uh, she mentioned on, as soon as she got the part, she mentioned on Facebook that, a year ago, two years ago, she was doing extra work on Hollyoaks yeah. when she saw James cross the room. And at that point, you think that's that, you know, that, that's a highlight of your career, being in a room with people who do television. It's kind of like, now she's playing his wife. Well, so that's the kind of opportunity this, this theatre can give that we really want to be involved in. Excellent. So it's James Sutton in Venus Rising, uh, written by Ian. Uh, it is directed by Julia Carstairs, uh, Laura Connolly, Abigail McKenzie and Thomas Galashan are all in there uh, alongside James for his, uh, for his Krypton factor of a performance, which I'm sure has all the sensitivity <laughs> in it's not just It's not just remembering things and battering it with a big hammer. No, no. It's not, is it? There'll be some subtlety in there. <laughs> Don't you worry at all. It's, it's basically a, Hamlet. It's the Hope Street Theatre. Good Lord, Ian. Uh, I tell you what, that's gone to your head. Love to 
Santa's <laughs> open indeed. It's basically Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet, sorry, uh, the Hope Street Theatre, Liverpool, 6th, 7th, 8th and 9th of June. Ticketquarter.co.uk for the tickets. This is the Anfield app. After the break, we're going to speak to Samantha Johnson. The top raids are allowed to be on again, John. They have, yeah, I've, I've, I've noticed they're getting about a lot more. I've seen them do, have seen they've gone into TV. Have they? They've gone yeah, huge. they start doing TV adverts, which means they're doing well. So I'm pleased for them. You know, the boys, the, uh, Jeff and Andy, Jeff and Andy, two best friends like me and you, a couple of kids with a crazy dream. They were fed up being overcharged for podcasts slash raises. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pleased, like, the fact that they're advertising on telly shows are doing well, but I am a bit miffed that they didn't ask me and you to do it. What, the voiceover or something? Or, or, or you know, a bit of physical acting and, and stuff like that. What, like close up on the mirrors and sort of showing contours on yeah. our faces? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or me and you going, I could never get a great shave, but then we then we met Jeff and Andy, slash, we're introduced to them via uh, audio boom. And, and, other, and other people, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we love the aloe vera, that sort of talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, close shave at a price you can afford. Uh, I think they've missed a trick. To be honest. Well, I mean, it's like everything else. We haven't done Panto. Uh, <laughs> they didn't ask us to do Bake Off, uh, which was a blow. You know the most solid documentary you've contributed to? Yes. Do you know who's doing the voiceover? No. Paul Hollywood. Really? Yeah, That's yeah, wild. It's, it's Hollywood. <laughs> it's huge. Uh, That's absolutely wild. Yeah, it is. It is. It's absolutely. It's, it's crazy stuff. Uh, and again, you know, they could have asked me and you. We'd have stepped in. I and- mean, well, I'm on it, so so I'll, I'll, I'll take that because I was worried about this most solid documentary because... Uh, we did a lot of filming when we were in Rome, and then, um, and so you didn't really know kind of what was what was a big deal or what wasn't. So what you know, you just end up kind of turning up and talking into a camera, then running off to do something else. And and this documentary, and then I saw an advert for it, and it's Steve Gerrard and like loads of boss footballers, <laughs> and then it's Gary Lineker's company has made it in it, and it's on, and I'm like, bloody hell, this is a big deal. They'll, they'll probably not use me, but you've had the tip off to the off. That's a t- the tip off indeed. So that's coming out on <laughs> Tuesday, ten o'clock. Anyway, back to Harry's. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is uh, the the, the raises uh, that they haven't asked us to do on television, but they still want us to do on podcasts. God knows why. When listeners this one back, they'll be saying, "What's this most sellers documentary they banged on about?" Oh, it's it's part of integrated content, though. That's it's, what they this call how it. this works yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what, John, you're in the biz. Uh, <laughs> Harry's.com forward slash Anfield to claim your trial set for three ninety five. Uh, as I say in the past, I'm still using my Harry's Rays. I really am. Uh, I've I, I changed the head on it recently and all that sort of stuff. All going very, very well indeed. Uh, I've got more gel in as well. John, you'll be pleased to know. Oh, great. Yep, uh, got more gel in. Um, well, got, I just the gel's is important to the razor for me. It, no, it is. It genuinely is. The gel's the absolute yeah. business. So I've got another box out of them uh, recently. So this is this is legit. It's nice to do the Harry's one, which is legit, uh, having used it. And it is a very, very good idea as well. Get post, gets posted directly to your house. Takes takes the pressure off all of that sort of stuff. Um, this is the special offer. The trial sets £3.95. It then goes up from there. It's harrys.com forward slash Anfield for the offer. Uh, harrys.com forward slash Anfield. Um Pretty easy to remember uh, if you want to go down that sort of route. And yep, you can get shave, get started shaving with Harry's today uh, for three ninety five on that one. And it does support the podcast in that it supports the via audio boom. And they pop these ads in for us these days, and they're all very good people there as well. They were currently trying to do all sorts of little bits and pieces for us and dealing with the difficulties that is talking to the Anfield rap about anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complex, multifaceted beast. Um, yes, the contract negotiations are always very long, uh, so we feel sorry for them so it helps them as well uh, so that's the five blade cartridge the foam and shave gel the travel blade cover still unused not going to lie to anyone but the razor handle uh, and it's all a vet, it's a flexible and transparent subscription got anything else got anything else on them just a high quality shave at a better price isn't it excellent stuff i'll tell you what eh? that, that is integrated content harrys.com forward slash anfield cut loose
It is the Anfield Wrapper on Radio City Talk. I'm joined now by Samantha Johnson over the phone and Amelia Bonner in the studio to have a conversation about Samantha's career uh, and how she's grown her career. Uh, she's currently presenting in Turkey a show called Beyond the Game. Um, but a few weeks back, you may remember, we, we had a conversation with Melissa Reddy about the challenges that she's faced uh, in terms of her career. And a lot of people warmed to it. And I thought that's something we'd like to do again. And we've got the opportunity to talk to, to, talk to Samantha as a, as a black woman who's making a career for herself in uh, covering football and football journalism. And Samantha, the, the, the first thing I'd sort of say on this is what struck me when I spoke to Melissa, and you, you, you may disagree, everyone has different experiences, but is the, the stress of, of having to sort of prove yourself not just once, but having to repeatedly sort of feel as though you have to earn the right a little bit that, that because, of, because of both gender issues, because of racial issues, that people are often looking at you slightly askew and you've got to win those battles every single time about your knowledge of the game and your background. Yeah, um, she's got it spot on. I mean, it's exhausting, but um, I don't know how I did it. How I did it, but you, sometimes you just have to have this sheer bloody mindedness to actually push through. And she's right in that. Yeah, I have to prove myself because I'm black. Two, because I'm female. Three, I'm from a working class background, a single parent family. There's just so many. I don't know. I suppose barriers, but at the same time. I think I'm not that I focus too much on it, but if you think about it or you focus too much on it, then you you start to create insecurities and the mind is a very powerful thing. And if you start to think negatively, it makes an impact on you. So when I was working, um, I started my sports, my sports industry um, at Sky Sports News. And when I went in there, you know, all I saw were, you know, posh blonde girls on screen or I just thought, okay, there's no way they're going to take me on. They would never want someone like me on screen. What I should have thought of was, you know what, I've got something that they don't. I've got, well, they don't, but I I mean, I don't know a lot about them, but I just, I just knew my stuff. I was passionate. I've got a fantastic work ethic. I shouldn't have seen that as a, as a negative do you feel like you kind of, it's almost like as, as a woman in this industry, you have to know more than the people that you're going up against? Because I guess we talk a lot about it being difficult as a woman and kind of as a person of colour to get into the industry, but kind of in what sort of ways is it difficult? Is it kind of in in having to prove yourself as legitimate or kind of, you know, saying the same thing as a colleague might say, but not getting recognised for it? Kind of what were the barriers that you found or kind of how was it difficult for you? What I found difficult was just feeling intimidated, I suppose. And this is very early on in my career as well. So when you've just started out, you feel like you don't really have a voice. So you kind of have to push yourself a bit forward. And if you say something, it has to be right. You you can't mess up because yeah. if you do, it's, oh, yeah, she doesn't know anything. Let's just, you know, don't listen to it again or whatever. But at the same time, there's a guy that knows nothing or doesn't know as much but he gets you know he gets a pass Mm. because oh you know he's a season ticket holder or whatever or his parent is a producer or I don't know a presenter whatever it's just I found that quite difficult but another thing that I found very I don't know I suppose it still irritates me to this day when I don't see anyone with a brilliant work ethic I mean, I've always been raised to be like, if you want to have something, you go get it. But there are some people that might be in this industry that think 
you know what, I have a God-given right to be here and I don't have to work as hard. And sometimes they get a pass and they might get a bit further and you just think, I don't think you deserve that spot, that position. I'm better than you, but because I'm a female, I'm black. It gets shoved aside. Sorry, but that again, that was that was very early on in my career. It's different once I got more experienced and I I went freelance and you you know you build up your confidence. And then um, yeah, everything just started to fall into place. I had a better, I just felt a lot more confident about my abilities. It's amazing what happens when you remove yourself out of a toxic situation and you're allowed to grow, and you have the right people around you as well. Is the the next sort of stage on this that strikes me? Uh, Samantha, is, is, is there something in, you've done something recently, you've been working recently, you're an ambassador with Kick It Out, and you've been working with Kick mm-hmm. It Out recently, is there, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you, you you almost want to get a situation that you you know you feel as though it can change, but the, again, you're sort of left feeling as though you, you've got to, you've got to represent in order to bring about the change that you want to bring about, that's an additional pressure, even as you get more and more mature within your career, <laughs> but is this something which you've, you know, you're feeling as though, there is at least that you know that there are beginning to be more and more ways for people from from less privileged backgrounds to the norm to to, to break into the sports media industry, or or do you think that that remains an uphill battle? It will always remain an uphill battle until you have the people in power actually addressing, you know, certain issues within the industry. That's not just you know diversity that goes across the board. But what I do respect the likes of you know, Kick It Out is the fact that they're actually doing something about it. And they're inviting, you know, youngsters, you know, graduates to places like the Emirates. And these kids, and I feel like I can call them kids because I'm over the age of 30. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, these guys are actually uh, getting to have one-on-ones with respected journalists from great, or great broadcasters. And they get to ask them all the questions they want or the, you know, just... I say have a chat, I'm not saying it's like a, a therapy session, but I really wish I had something like that starting out because I felt very alone. I didn't think there were a lot of black females that I could look up to. But when you see us all in one room and we're willing to give advice and, you know, stay in contact and, you know, if there's a, a work experience scheme, we can actually tell, kick it out, kick it out, we'll tell the students and then they can come along. It, that gives me hope and it's all really positive. So we are making strides um and i'm just kind of happy to be a part of it because once you get to a certain stage in your career you just have to give back you can't uh, pull up the ladder afterwards i mean even though i'm living in istanbul i you know i will fly back i flew back for that so yeah do you feel like you are a bit of a role model kind of given what you've been able to do and achieve do you feel like you're kind of you're now in a position where you are able to do that um, role models, that word kind of scares me a little bit. Because I'm like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm like, I am no angel, trust me. <laughs> but it's, I feel like I have a, a responsibility and I have a duty. So um, I might have a couple of girls email me or contact me over on social media asking for advice. And I feel like it's my duty to help them. And I do, when whatever way I can, whatever time I can, it's, Sometimes it's a bit hectic, I might forget, but I will always get back to them. So even if it's just a response, it's, yeah, I, again, not role model because, again, it's, that makes me feel under pressure, but I do feel like I have a duty to give back and help the other 
youngsters through Bendigy, but they've got to want it as well. They can't just think, okay, I'm just going to call this uh, this um, editor at this publication and I'm going to get a job. Like, no, you have to make sacrifices. We've all made them. Like you, All of us have made sacrifices to get uh, where we are today and it's not easy. And I just hope that the next generation understand that. Um, Taking it so the love of sport, which is, you know, the, the, the primary thing that drives you in amongst all of this. From the mm-hmm. outside looking in, I'm always intrigued at this stage of the year to sort of ask people from the outside looking in because we can get so stuck in our Liverpool bubble doing all the work that we do <laughs> about sort of, you know, the, the perception of Liverpool across the course of this season. I mean, I think it's it's fair to say that, you know, with the European Cup final, the Champions League final against Real Madrid on the horizon, you know, I, I, I'm of the view this is, you know, this has obviously been a good season for Liverpool, but also that Liverpool are maybe in, 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 captured captured the attention, if not the hearts, of a fair few neutrals with the free flow and attacking football. But you might say, well, you need to be better defensively and I can't bear you. It's up to you. Which way are you going to go? Oh, let me think. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm a neutral. My head says, I think Real Madrid are going to win, but I want Liverpool to win the final. I think Liverpool have been so exciting to watch this season. It's a bit. It's been a breath of fresh air. I think up front, uh, Sadio Mane, Firmino, Salah. It, it, for some reason, Jurgen Klopp has made this side click, and it's refreshing to see, especially getting seeing an English team get so far in this competition. I'm sick of Spanish teams winning uh, of the Champions League for sure. But I, I think the perception, especially being out in Turkey in Istanbul. The fandom is it's on. I'd say it's on the same level for sure in terms of how passionate fans are about their particular side. Um, we had um, an exclusive interview with Stephen Gerrard, and he was talking about the night in Istanbul. And he said something really interesting about Liverpool fans. He said, um, "You know, Liverpool fans they wake up and it's football. They think about football. that football is in their blood." You know, and yeah. it's very similar to fans over here in Turkey. So imagine you've got, okay, Liverpool or Merseyside, you, you guys are passionate about your team. Imagine what it's like in this country. Yeah. Like all the, te- all the teams in country, they're just, the fans are just absolutely crazy, but in the best possible way. Can I, can so I, I think in um, that sense, I think there's a lot of identification with the Turkish fans and Liverpool. For sure. Well, just out of interest, and you might you might have to say I can't answer this question, uh, which mm-hmm. I'll be fine with. Uh, but have you got a have you got an Istanbul team that, that, that that's your favourite <laughs> that you look out for, or, or is that like trade secrets given the, given the job? <laughs> it's like I cannot say this. I think every you know what I think it's kind of it's not a secret anymore. Um, but I I'm a Besiktas fan. Okay. And it, they got to me first. I will say that, and I don't get any stick from any other. Like like any other Istanbul club or any other fan because they think oh so why are you Besiktas? It's like I've got to give them a good reason why I'm a Besiktas fan, <laughs> and if it's a good enough reason, then they're fine. But they're very inviting as well. So one of the pieces that I had to do, and this was I think it was last year, we're twenty okay twenty seventeen. I was interviewing a Besiktas a Gala fan and a Fenerbahce, and you know they knew that I support I supported Besiktas. But they were very keen to let me know about their club and their history. And that's what you find with a lot of Turkish fans. They want you to learn about their culture. 
and their team. They're very, very inviting. I haven't had any trouble. And it's, uh, you know, there's banter back and forth. I know a little bit of Turkish, but it's, um, it's, it, there's a lot of banter back and forth. But I don't, yeah, it's, it's brilliant seeing another footballing culture and, and one that is so intense like a Turkish, like a Turkish Super League or Turkish football in general. Quite beautiful, actually. Uh, I've always admired it from the outside. Listen, thank you very much to Samantha uh, here on Radio City Talk for taking the time to talk to the Anfield app today. Uh, next time that she's doing any sort of conference, national conference, anything like that, we'll make sure that you know about it, uh, listeners, and make clear what it is that's going on. Thank you very much to Amelia as well. Uh, this is the Anfield app on Radio City Talk. Don't go anywhere. Uh, after the break, well, we'll be doing something else. I haven't decided yet. If they're in bet special stuff, Neil Atkinson and John Gibbons, they've given us our own. Do you know this? No. Um, I Yeah, uh, Anfield Rap Champions League final specials. Is on the website on the Reds Bet website. So are these ideas that we came up with, and then they put prices on put them. Prices on them. Yeah. Oh, I wish I'd have been involved in this. I wish. Well, I, I was just doing it on WhatsApp with Tom uh, <laughs> when I was, you know, when I was going to and from London the other yeah. day. Look, I'm sure there'll be other opportunities. Uh, there will be. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I, what would I have gone for? Go ahead. Um So in the meantime, if you're going to gamble, did, did you have to think of the puns as well? Oh I, no, I only thought of the puns. <laughs> Oh, no, they worried about everything else. Yeah, well, they, they know they, I, there was a couple of little bits in there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, but I was trying to make the puns be dictate them into being really, really good prices, right? Into good, into good offers. So just quickly on this, that Red's Bet were partnered with the entirety of uh, twenty eighteen. We're really pleased to have done so. They give fifty uh, percent of profits back to supporter related causes, and through Red's Bet, it's Liverpool supporter related causes and opportunities and initiatives. And they're working on that all year round at the minute. They're trying to pull the the, 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 the Liverpool ones together quicker and quicker. Uh, we're hoping to have some news on that for you in the next week or so in terms of the wider uh, fans bet umbrella. But also Red's Bet across the course of the summer, they're going to be working on all sorts. However, uh, we want you to gamble responsibly. We want you to be gambleaware.org. So do do that and do be on top of that. Come up with anything, anything you would have done? All I've got is a Ukrainian goals, which is a six goals or more in the final. That's a that's a belter. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I'm really impressed. Yeah. Um, well, I started with Ukrainian men, but um, but I couldn't think of what, what that would actually be. So Ukrainian goals is, you know. Well, I gave them a fair few, some of which there's only four they've selected. Uh, so the first one is Sixth Sense, which is Liverpool to win on penalties. 14 to 1. That's decent, that. That is decent odds. I'm not sure. But the first thing I think of when you said that is that'd be a, that's going to be a tough 120 minutes. Uh, well, and then, yeah, 120 minutes a sheer hell. Yeah. And with the penalties. Um, who do you think? I'm, I'm obsessed with who take them. Um, well, I think this is the big thing about getting Emery Chan semi-fit because he can take a good pen. So, like, throw him on last two. And Chan. It's, and it's last kick of the ball stuff. Lallana. Well, yeah. Yeah. Firmino would want to take one, I think. Well, Salah would want one. Salah uh, would want one. Firmino. Mane, I think we're full of lads who'd want one. Yeah. Mane would want one. Van Dijk would want one. There's no way Degsy Lovren says no under any circumstances. Whether or not you give him a pen is yeah. a separate conversation. There's James Milner. Um, Hendo's a funny one, isn't he? Because he, he didn't do one in the, the City League Cup game, did he? I don't. But no. he has he has scored a pen for Liverpool um, against Arsenal, but it was rubbish. It was one of them pens where you like it almost doesn't deserve to go in. Yeah. Do you remember in that yeah, away yeah. game where we got beat? Um, I think it was four two. I think. Um, but you yeah. think he'd want one? I don't know because he because I say he didn't in the League Cup final, but then he got a bit of a stick, so maybe he's thinking oh, I need to step I'll need to step up next time. Um, yeah, don't really fancy any of them. But then, like when we got to penalties in 2005, I thought, oh, that's it. They've got loads of boss players, and 
deed was like huge. Yeah, we, well, we worked out you could only dive one way, uh, <laughs> which helped. Uh, so I'm obsessed with the penalties. Shout to fourteen to one. Uh, winner Aldum. Uh, when Aldum to score last and Liverpool to win in normal time, fifty to one. Yeah, I mean rightly, I would say, but you know, hey. You don't think you don't, you don't see a genie win Aldum winner? No, I don't think so. Okay, sweet sixteen. Uh, Liverpool to win to nil in normal time. It's nine to two. Okay. I'm not sure on that one. I would have thought that would be priced a little bit bigger, but I can see a scenario where we get on top and we do the business. Yeah, I do. Uh, and Liverpool to win one nil in normal time, and Jordan Henderson to score the score the goal. Two hundred and fifty to one. <laughs> Tremendous. Tremendous. Two fifty. Well, it might be worth a quid. Yeah, two fifty. Yeah. Uh, so they're the, they're the specials that are on there. We're going to be talking more and more about this stuff, but also our review show uh, that we do uh, with Sean Rogers um, is going to be put out uh, with Sean and, and, and normally Paul Copa or Ben Johnson. It's going to be put out with a preview uh, for free next week for non-subscribers because of our partnership with Reds Bet the Vast. If we'll put something out with them, and in there we'll also be having a chat about some of the work they've been doing. And so that's available for you next week. Um, so yeah, uh, that is to come. So next week, just to have a little chat to you really as the listener if you come through this part uh, for the podcast audience we'll be to, we've got so much content it's ridiculous both either side of the paywall three free shows going out next week uh, the Anfield wrap expected on Sunday uh, and then this uh, review preview if you see what I mean expect that on Tuesday and then the City Talk show they're the free shows and there's going to be by, by the end of the week it's going to be four or five shows a day including us on the bus uh, as we get a bus from Liverpool all the way to Kiev I can't believe this has happened to me uh, but we are where we are on this everyone's one. blaming everyone else for this bus thing now I've found like, Everyone's going, oh, I can't believe we're on up on this bus. Like, it must have been someone's idea. I just think it was Emma's. <laughs> and she's not on the bus. Emma's figured out the way that how are we going to get everyone, how can I get everyone away from me for as long as possible until she's picked the bus. Because I was away. I went straight to Benidorm famously after Rome, Rome yes. Dorm. And, and I was just getting all these texts on the buses. And I'm like, oh, this is a bit mad. But obviously, like, they're all dead keen. I think the, I think the issue was I think that to be fair the issue was how expensive accommodation was at Kiev especially around that time. Right. So if we were going to fly, then it threw up open all these other questions, and then it became the idea of also how do you do all the content that we do? Because we do so many shows. Yeah. So how are we going to do it? Where are we going to do it? And then that be sort of so I think there was a series of logical sort of solutions that led us to this point without anybody wholly endorsing the, <laughs> the, the, the final point. You know what I mean? You know when you yeah. like sort of like, like playing a game of chess and you're not quite happy with where you are, yeah. and you sort of know you're not even you know. Even even in games of chess that you win, the last five, six moves, sometimes everyone's just going through and yeah, going, this is this is logically what we've all got to do now, so we've all got to do it. Okay. And that's it. So there's got a lot of bus, uh, and we'll be, uh, yeah, we'll be, get, we'll be getting loads and loads of content on that bus. Uh, but thank you very much to Red Bet for partnering with us for the whole of the year. Those Red Bet, Red Bet specials are there. Uh, do share the glory uh, and work with them. Uh, we're very pleased to do so. And uh, let's get back to the rest of this slightly mad city talk. I'm not going to lie to you, but I was very conscious that it was the city talk where it's still eight days from the final, and you've got to find other things to talk about at least, at least for a day or two. See you in a bit. Joined by Grant Wall author of Football 2.0, a book that's just come out this week. And Grant, let's talk about firstly the premise of the book. You've you've gone away, you've spoken to interesting, active individuals in the world of football. You've got Manuel Neuer talking about his goalkeeping and the way in which he thinks about it and reasons it through. You've got... uh, company talking about being a defender you've got Xabi Alonso uh, talking about being a deep line midfielder uh, you've got Christian Pulisic talking about being an attacking midfielder Javier Hernandez talking about being a striker you've got Roberto Martinez talking about being a manager of Michael Zork talking about being a director of football and what I think you were trying to 
do, and by all means contradict me and say I'm talking nonsense, you were trying to build this idea of this is football rethinking itself. That's what you're getting to see here, football rethinking itself, and that there's lots and lots of individuals across a football pitch. These are just examples of people who are rethinking how they play the game, how they operate within the structure of the game, how they manage, etc., etc. The original idea for the book, actually, I'm outright stealing an idea for a classic baseball book in the United States called Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball, where... Uh, the author, George Will, took the sport of baseball, divided it into four functions, picked one person to represent each yeah. who was very good at what they did, but also really intelligent at explaining how they went about their craft. This book is the craft of soccer, position by position. I have seven people like the guys you mentioned. Uh, one thing that happened in the process of the interviews over this two-year period, and these were multiple sit-down interviews with all the players and managers involved watching film with them. Yeah. Um, the bit, with, I mean, just on that, the segment where you're watching on a giant screen company and his performances <laughs> and what he does, it's, I mean, you must have been thrilled to get the opportunity to do that. It this sounds, was a life moment. I mean, where you yeah. get this, this opportunity that is so rare to have this amount of time just asking questions of a, a Vincent Company or a Manuel Neuer or a Xavi Alonso about what it, we're seeing them do on the screen. And the clubs would put together these clip uh, packages where we would watch for half an hour, 45 minutes, but it was very tightly packed. And one thing that happened with most of these players over the time of these interviews was the idea of modern football would come up from time to time. And I would ask them, what does the term modern football mean to you? And not in a sort of cynical, commercialized way that we sometimes talk about modern football, but the sport on the field itself. And Vincent Company could talk for 10 minutes without stopping about what modern football means to him. And a lot of that comes down to not sort of just having the traditional skill or two that's associated with your position, but being able, in Vincent Company's case, not just to defend one-on-one -on -one in the box, but to be able to start the attack and get upfield uh, to score goals on the set piece. Um, and just to hear him talk about that was, was really fascinating to me. When you... You obviously identified these players. You've got the idea, you, you, you know, Noya, if you are going to talk about someone who's reinventing the way goalkeeping works, then Noya is the man to go to. When you've you've gone through all of these, is there something where you, you, you were looking for them to be these articulate individuals? Because one of the core things about companies, you could listen to company talk about, if we're all honest, I know this is a Liverpool show, but you could listen to company talk about practically the weather. You could read the phone book and you'd get your attention. Alonso, you know, we've interviewed Alonso in the past and everyone just come, everyone who's ever had anything to do with Xabi Alonso talks about how, just how phenomenally good company he is. Because you were going to spend this much time with them, because the, the, you, were you looking for, right, I'm not just looking here for interesting footballers, I'm actually looking for personalities. I was looking for personalities. I was looking for people who might become managers someday, who might work professionally in television someday in analysis. And the fact of the matter is, is that 98, 99% of athletes aren't very good at putting words to their skill. And that's fine. There's actually no shame in that. Yeah. But you want to find, at least I did for this book, yeah. the guys in that 1% who are not just world-class, but able to, to put it into words in ways that their very special, rarefied experience can come through verbally, and then that can come out on the page. What 
when you were addressing the idea of, of, of modern football with them, were you looking for them in terms of, because one of the things that is fascinating through the book is, is it, it's almost like talking to, to artists about what influences them. And that, you know, there's, there's, there's that sort of vibe in the conversations that you have. And, you know, you, you're looking for the idea of, you know, almost give me your list of influences, whether it's footballers you've watched, teams you've watched, and then flipping that onto then the people that you've worked with, both as, as, as colleagues, as players, but also as managers. Were you, was that at the center of what you were trying to do? Yeah, it was. And there are so many things I learned that I wasn't expecting. And when you have the luxury of time, of being able to just probe in interviews with some of these players, like Manuel Neuer, for instance, when he talks about his influences as goalkeepers, is almost, I wouldn't say denigrating about German goalkeepers in history, but clearly has never thought of German goalkeepers even Oliver Kahn or Jens Lehmann as innovators, that his guys that he looked at as innovators were people like Edwin van der Sar, yeah. um, who he talks about at length. And even Vincent Company, who spent time in Germany, talks about Neuer in this, about how when he was there, Neuer was just coming up and he was different, Company said, than other German goalkeepers. He uh, has now spawned a new generation of German goalkeepers like Ter Stegen, yeah. who are more innovative in that realm. And so in a, in a sense, Neuer has completely changed the way the top German goalkeepers view goalkeeping. Is there, is there something in the idea of people completely um, reassessing, reassessing positions and demands? There's, there's a figure that sits underneath these conversations that you're having, and it's Pep Guardiola. So Neuer, company, and Alonso have all worked with Guardiola, and the extent to which you... What comes through there is that Guardiola makes them, influences them to think about what it is they're doing profoundly differently. Is It's just there, it's just presence, that he has had this profound effect. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Even though I did not interview Pep Guardiola for this book, it's almost like he's a character in the book when you hear Neuer and company and Alonso talk about the influence of Guardiola because these are guys who've won the biggest trophies in the sport. And yet they're in their 30s and saying how much they're learning under Guardiola that they did not learn is the implication under previous managers. Yeah. And a guy like Alonso's played for just about everybody. It's Benitez, like. Mourinho, Guardiola. I mean, it's quite the triumvirate of managers to have worked with. Yeah. And what they talk about is positioning. So Xavi Alonso is saying that basically everything that he ever learned about passing he knew by the time he was 18 or 19 years old. What he did not know, even into his 30s, and why he wanted to play for Guardiola to end his playing career and set up a managerial career, is positioning. And that is something that Guardiola is manic about, making sure that a player in a training session is one foot or two feet up away from where the player was and explain to the player and taking time and training to explain to everyone why that's important. Is the the influence factor on this is, is is what sort of grabs me is is and it, it does appear to be that the the idea of having more video footage, the idea of being able to self-analyze better, that's something that comes through here. But it doesn't come through as though oh these are the players who self-analyze and no one else does. There are pains to say everybody's doing this, we're all doing this, we're all getting this information and this data, and then we're making our decisions based on it. One of the things I think it's called Football 2.0, and one of the things that comes over is there's obviously been footballers historically who have innately, to some extent, some at unbelievable levels, someone like Graham Souness, Kenny Dalglish, to understand the game at, at, at a whilst playing it at a pitch that you know is, is something that approximates genius. 
But do you think that when you are thinking about football 2.0, one of the key aspects of this is now the realm and the extent of the information that is made available to the players, to their coaches, to improve them, to improve what they can do on the pitch. And that has a knock-on effect that everybody's got to do that. And then everybody's got to do it more. That The key thing about Football 2.0 is the amount of thought that's going into this. Yeah, there's so much data that is available uh, to players, to managers these days. But you have to decide what data you want to use, what is not as important. A selection and, and, process. And the value of experience so much in, in any trade is not just knowing what to do, but knowing what you don't need to do. So you can focus on what helps you the most. And so uh, it was interesting to talk to a guy like uh, Alonzo doesn't look at a ton of video himself, but other players do. Uh, company certainly does. Uh, Neuer does. Um, you know, to look at, to talk to Roberto Martinez and half this, ch- the chapter on Martinez is about his time at Everton. When I started my interviews with yeah. him there, half of it's with his time at Belgium and hearing him describe the differences between being a club coach and a, and a national team coach, but also hearing him discuss what in terms of analytics, in terms of data analysis, do I and my people need to look at and, He's more about not wanting to use it for too many things, but also to test theories of his out that he has a hunch on, but maybe doesn't have the data to back it up, wants to see that data. The same thing seems to come through in the company section again when he was talking about coming up against a certain type of striker. And there was also, which I thought was really warm within that, and it comes through, I think, in the Neuer chapter, it comes through in all of them really, that we can want to do things, but that doesn't mean they're going to work that we can know what we should be doing, but firstly, we can be too tired because of the, the, the impact of a game slash a season, but also that we can we can have the idea of, well, we know this is the next thing that we should be doing, but that doesn't mean it's going to necessarily, you know, it could be that, that, that Peter Crouch is six foot seven and you've got to accept it. You know, that comes through there, that there is something where there's, that they, 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 they can know this is sport. They can know that they that what, what, what should be happening, but they also know it's not always going to. Yeah, especially coming from Vincent Company, a guy who says, I know what I need to be doing in this situation, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to execute it correctly 100% of the time. And that's dependent also on who you're marking. You know, he speaks almost reverently about Luis Suarez and going up against Suarez over the years, both when Suarez was at Liverpool and also since he's moved to Barcelona when they've met in Champions League. And those battles, it's almost as if company uh, has a a special feeling toward those battles because they're so difficult. He has this tremendous respect. Is there, is there something in the the growth of, you, you pull a sick, you, you, again, you speak to him, he's, he, he's marked out in the book really because I think everybody, he's by, by some distance, by 10 years, the youngest person that you speak to across the book. And yet he's able to to self-reflect across his own career, across his own processes. There's something that, you know, footballers are coming through now. We recently interviewed Trent Alexander-Arnold and he was, you know, remarkably articulate and interested and also interesting about himself that the footballers now are coming through and they're more able from an earlier age to to think about who they are in this world that they inhabit. I think so. It depends on the situation. It's obviously case by case, but... Uh, Pulisic is a kid who went to Dortmund at age 15, uh, went to a club that gives young players opportunities to play under pressure and kind of throws you in the deep end and, and finds out how you how you do. And if you respond well, they'll continue giving you opportunities. And I think 
for him, that was important to gain confidence, yep. uh, but also to, uh, to, to not also be the best player on the team and get a big head that comes with that. We worry about that in the U.S. for, for young Americans to get too much too soon. He seems to be in the, at least for this couple-year period, in almost the perfect developmental place for now at Dortmund uh, to get these opportunities to play at an extremely high level. And he has learned a, a, a lot educationally, and that comes through in the book. This is a guy who, at age 19, is extremely analytical about the game, about how he plays it, about how defenders play it, and also about where he needs to improve in terms of once he beats a player one-on-one, what you do then in the box, whether it's a cross, a through ball, a shot, or whatever. The, the finished product isn't there yet, and he understands that. Um, just to sort of sum it up, you close the book talking to Michael Zork. Um, one of the one of the things that that, that that occurred to me in that is is the the influence, and I think it is. I mean, by all means, disagree. I think it's mostly a positive influence that that men like Michael Zork now have in football in terms of the fact that managers in the past they were left with, with, with without that much of a support structure, without that some guy to come in and, and help them with a variety of little bits and pieces of what it is that they do. But also in terms of, and I say it's the key thing in the book, someone to say, this is the sort of information we should be collecting, whether it's about potential transfers, whether it's what we're doing internally. This is the information. This is the information that matters. This is how we talk about that information. And I think it's interesting that you end with Zork in the book because it's as though everyone else is ever so slightly a product of people like him and they don't even know that. They're not near that. But you need to have a Zork sort of mindset in there for it to filter down, whether it's to a manager, whether it's to Xabi Alonso, whether it's to Vincent Company, that needs to have been this direction of travel. I think you come away from it. I know I came away from this book with a very clear understanding that having someone like Zork, uh, a sporting director, director of football, whatever you want to call it, who is in charge of long-term strategy is tremendously important in the modern game. And that if you're asking the manager who is handling the first team day-to-day to to be in charge of all of that stuff, I think you're asking for trouble. There's just too much to have to do. And Zorik is a master of being able to to look at the long-term strategy of Dortmund, to have a tremendous scouting force working for him where they've identified – there's a long list of players in the book of players who they've bought low, sold high – and they just continue to do it year after year after year. And this is not something that's a coincidence after a while. And I think it, it's not a coincidence either that this is a guy, Zork, who is from Dortmund. He played his entire career at Dortmund. Yeah. He has a very close identity with Borussia Dortmund. And if you can find people that are uh, that are good at that, then uh, they're tremendously valuable. I put him with Monchi at Roma uh, there's not too many directors of football. There's probably fewer like elite directors of football in European European football right now than there are managers. Okay, great to speak to Grant. The book is called Football 2.0. It's out now. It's on Backpage Press. You can get it from all of the obvious places. We'll be tweeting out about it as well. Uh, an absolute pleasure to have him. That was Grant Wall. It was an absolute pleasure. And now we're going to go over and speak to Michael Lambert, joined now by Michael Lambert from the University of Liverpool, uh, who has been working on effectively histories around uh, the city of Liverpool uh, and social histories of that for a while and he got in touch and via my dad who did his course and spoke so highly of him uh, and said that you needed you were looking to get some information so first and foremost Michael let's talk a little bit about the work that you you are doing before we talk about how people can help 
Great. Uh, so basically, uh, I'm a historian at the University of Liverpool, although I'm based in the Department of Public Health and Policy. And I'm currently working on a project uh, that's looking and celebrating, in many ways, uh, the history of the NHS, uh, but just in the Merseyside region. So we're looking to build a profile of the hospitals, the people, the organisations, and the way that, although the NHS is certainly a national institution, uh, it's very much part of a, a local history. And so we're looking at how that's operated, changed, developed, uh, and grown over the, the 70 years since it was established uh, in 1948. And I'm part of a team of four uh, based in the Department of the University of Liverpool. And I mean, that sounds like an absolutely enormous piece of work, to be honest with you. To tell the story of 70 years is, it's a big ask. And to tell it in a way which which, which I believe, you know, you're looking to be inclusive. You want this work to be uh, to be put on public view uh, around the time of the 70-year anniversary. Absolutely. So, so far, uh, basically, I've been working with a lot of uh, archival materials, sort of original documents, reports and minutes of meetings, things like that. And also I've been doing a, a few bits and pieces with the, the Royal Liverpool, who are also celebrating their 40th year uh, in their new site until they move into the, uh, the other one later on. Um, but it's only half of a story and it's a very dry, it's very... Uh, true, I think, to the historical documents, but it doesn't give the whole picture. And so what I'm interested in is the other side of that story, that the people who actually make up uh, the NHS, because at the end of the day, it's a personal service, it's a health service, and, yeah. and they make it. And so you're looking for people who, who have worked any time during that period, really, any time through the 70 years, who can both help you sort of put the flesh on the bones of the archival information and also sort of tell, tell stories and, and, and have those stories be chronicled within this overarching history. Absolutely. So there are lots of uh, oral history projects that are being run by NHS trusts and clinical commissioning groups as part of this, sort of separate to what I'm doing. But I'm really interested in the, the bigger history of the NHS and what it does. So when people watch things on television or recall things about it, they think of doctors and nurses, but there's also the porters, there's the accountants, there's the administrators, the people in HR. Yeah. It's a bigger organisation, and I'm trying to really get to grips with that wider understanding of what the NHS does and is here on Merseyside. So if people were able to, to, to volunteer to, to, to contribute to the project, how, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, two ways. Uh, probably the best way would be to email me directly uh, through my university account, which is uh, m.h.lambert at liverpool.ac.uk. Or you can give me a ring. Uh, I mean, obviously at the office a lot of the time, but not always. But come so. here, for one. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> yeah. But you can leave it a message. So the number's uh, 0151 795 0131. And if you do leave a message, I'll get back to you and get something sorted. Excellent stuff. And the project that you are working on, it, it, isn't, the, it isn't the sort of project that's, that just gets sort of filed away and all that sort of stuff. You want, you're looking to find ways as well to, to, to exhibit it publicly. Absolutely. So there are a number of ways that we're trying to do things uh, sort of locally, trying to set up events and sort of discussion forums. But I think the idea is once that the 70th anniversary has passed, uh, to try and sort of make something more of it, basically. And the idea that it's part of the, the the story of Liverpool, that I think if you try and find a book, one book on it now, it's impossible to find. And so being able to have something that people can read, discuss and engage with, I think is really part of what we're trying to do. Excellent. And you're also working on another project that, that, that has a, a few similarities as well uh, with the PSS. Yeah, absolutely. So for my uh, PhD, uh, I did a lot of work uh, on sort of volunteering and social work and social services uh, here in the city of Liverpool. Uh, and there's a very fantastic organisation uh, now called Person Shaped Support, but then uh, called Personal Service Society, which was started in this city uh, in 1919 and it's celebrating its centenary next year. And I'm writing uh, their history and trying to get to grips again with their activities, what they do and what they did. And again, I'm faced with the kind of same issue that I've got half a story, that I've got full access to all their records, which are absolutely fantastic. But 
it's a volunteering organisation in many ways and people who do things on behalf and sort of run the different projects that they're involved with, I would be absolutely emphatic to speak to people who have either volunteered and done those or been on the receiving end throughout this whole, again, period of history, right from 1919 right up to the present day. Is there... The I mean, the challenges of, of writing something like that, to, again, to cover 100 years. I mean, this, again, isn't a small journal article. This isn't something that's, again, sort of sidelined. This is, and that is a major, major piece of work to, to, to do a 100-year history. I, I mean, how, where do you start is almost my question, I suppose. <laughs> Before 1919, as a bit of a, an aside, it's, it's basically trying to always assemble far more than you can ever possibly use and get the bigger picture and then think, what are the key things that someone has to know? And there's always a process of filtering and selection, which you, you can't really avoid. But yeah. it's then saying, okay, if I have these other bits and pieces, where can I use those? And that's where sort of displays, discussions, exhibitions, other kinds of material and sort of ways of, of showcasing it are part of it. And then this again, uh, the, the PSS will want this to be publicly on display. You can come back and talk to us about it as when it's pulled together. If people can help you out, you know we can. We, they will want to make obviously a, a fuss of their centenary Absolutely. and tell the story of what they've been doing. Absolutely, yeah. So there is going to be a launch event next year, uh, I think. So far, though, it's to be confirmed. I think at the uh, <laughs> Museum of Liverpool Life, and uh, so they're going to be a part of that. But it's not just. Uh, sort of a one-off event it's a bigger history I think and that's the important thing to use this centenary event to sort of say look it's got a big history it's got a big contribution both here in the city of Liverpool but also nationally and worldwide and about trying to make it part of this bigger understanding uh, excellent stuff so let's just give the details out again if people have got anything that they can contribute and don't be shy about sort of getting in touch with other people who may not have heard this but may well be able to help out so let's give your email address and phone number out again so people can uh, get in touch if need be so my email is uh all lowercase, it's m.h.lambert at liverpool.ac.uk. Uh, my phone number is uh, 0151-795-0131. Excellent, don't be shy at all. If you can help Michael out, do get in touch. And as I say, if you do know someone else, a third party, who may not be a Liverpool supporter, who may not be listening to this, but who may well be able to contribute towards these two, very, very huge projects uh, and which need all the contributing to that we can get. And certainly if we want histories to be written by people, uh, people coming forward is only going to be a good thing. Uh, this is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. And so that has been the Anfield Wrap this week. Listen, thank you very much to Michael there. Uh, thank you very much as well to Samantha, to Grant and to Ian and James. Listen, I hope it was enough of a varied show for you going right the way through. Uh, it's been a pleasure to do this week. Uh, so thank you to all the guests. Uh, it's been the Anfield Wrap. The road to Kiev starts on Sunday. Sports Social Podcast Network.